0: It was the middle of July, 1798, and part of Napoleon's Egyptian invasion force was fortifying its position in the city of Rosetta. The French general had arrived in Egypt just over two weeks earlier, on 335 ships carrying 40,000 soldiers. On the Mediterranean coast, not far from Alexandria, the city of Rosetta was located on a branch of the Nile River. While working to secure their position, Officer Pierre-Francois Xavier Bouchard uncovered a large stone slab that was inscribed with text. The inscription was on a tablet carved out of a black rock, and Pierre immediately recognized that the inscription on the black rock was in multiple languages listed as though they were connected. now imagine you and other scholars have been working for centuries on the hardest crossword puzzle that any of you have ever encountered. And you're at a total loss at almost every word reading a cross until you discover that one word going down ties everything together. This one clue unlocks the entire crossword puzzle. What's the answer to eight down? It's Rosetta Stone. The stone contained a decree written three times but in three different languages. Archaeologists were able to determine that it was inscribed by priests priest honoring the king of Egypt, Ptolemy V, in the second century BC. It also announced that the message was the same exact message in three different languages. The message itself was not particularly exciting or even important at the time. So I'm not going to read it to you because it reads like most government documents today and it drones on and on and on. You are welcome to Google the translation and read it for yourself, but you've been warned you will not get that part of your life back. No, what was important here was the three languages. Ancient Greek, the language used by Egyptian rulers during the time of Alexander the Great. Demotic, the common language of the Egyptian people. And the long-lost language of Egyptian hieroglyphs which had not been used in over 2,000 years. And again, amazingly, each language said the same thing. Napoleon Bonaparte did not just bring soldiers to Egypt. The general was excited to visit what was considered the birthplace of civilization. Traveling with them was a collection of scholars, artists, and scientists to establish France's Eastern empire. He not only wanted experts to study the culture and history, but he saw himself as a liberator, freeing the Egyptians from oppression. But don't get me wrong, he was still going to steal a lot of stuff. Colonizers going to colonize these scholars along with others over the centuries would use the rosetta stone to unlock ancient egyptian history and if you are willing to pay the subscription price it also gave the name to a popular language learning program that will teach you important phrases in other languages like the baby is wearing a hat and the milk is cold you know real conversation starters yes before the duolingo owl there was rosetta stone Welcome to God's Favorites, a history podcast about people who were God's favorites or at least thought they were. And in the latter category, we have Napoleon Bonaparte, episode three. Now, when we last left you, Napoleon was very suspicious of Josephine's affair, which she continued to deny, even though she brought her boyfriend to Italy with her. But on this episode of As the World Turns, while he's in Egypt, he keeps hearing more and more about her affair with Ebalit Charles. This is going to cause a massive power shift in the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine, because for the first time, Josephine will start to realize that maybe, just maybe, her position is in danger. And in the battle of who could care less, that means Napoleon was going to start taking a mistress. He would have several over his lifetime, but this one is Pauline Ferrette. She is the wife of one of his officers. And for funsies, she tagged along with the French to Egypt. He would also begin correspondence again with his ex, Desiree Clary. The letters were kind of sweet. And this is the time period in which he wrote his fan fiction about Desiree. Clisson and Eugenie, we talked about it in the first episode. It's no good, don't read it. Or do and have a good laugh. But these women to Napoleon were little more than just a release. He once famously declared that power is my mistress. Following victory in Italy, Napoleon Bonaparte had risen quickly through the ranks of the French military. In March of 1797, at only 28 years old, Napoleon would be given command of the Army of the Orient, setting him up for what he saw as a grand adventure. The mission from the French directory might have seemed impossible, but there was no question that General Bonaparte would choose to accept it cross the Mediterranean, avoiding the much more powerful British Navy, invade and occupy the lands of Egypt and Syria, form alliances with enemies of the British, and secure a trade route to India. It's hilarious to me that the Brits were fighting so hard for these spices, and if you've ever had British food, you know they don't use them, so what even was the point? There may also have been those in the Directory that also saw an opportunity to get Napoleon, a rising star, far away from French politics. The young general, a student of history and a fan of Egypt's ancient past, also seized on the chance to study the ancient culture he admired. Along with 40,000 soldiers, he would recruit 167 scientists to travel with them, and those were mathematicians, naturalists, chemists, and geologists. The Egyptian campaign would be a grand opportunity to Napoleon to expand the French Empire and continue to grow his own legend, which is probably more the reason he wanted to do it. But this was not without its challenges. The first challenge was how to move all these men and supplies across the Mediterranean Sea while avoiding the British fleet under the command of Rear Admiral Horatio Nelson. Setting sail in May, Napoleon's forces would head south, easily capturing the islands of Malta before turning east toward Alexandria and Egypt. The weather had been on the side of the French. A storm had taken off the top mast of Nelson's flagship, almost crashing it into the birthplace of Napoleon, the island of Corsica. That is some Alanis Morissette stuff, right? It's like rain. Ironically, Nelson had also lost an eye in fighting in Corsica just three years before. Losing his mass forced him to return to Gibraltar to regroup. Uh, avoiding the Royal Navy, the Armada would arrive on July 1st in Alexandria, and it would take only one day to take the city. And the next year of Napoleon's life is a great example of how history measures success or failure. It often depends on whose side you are and what you're trying to accomplish, and, well, who is writing the history? From the Mediterranean coast, the general planned to move inland toward Cairo and the land of the pyramids, however, he elected to send his soldiers across the desert, rather than following the only major water source, the Nile. While troops fortifying the coast were discovering the Rosetta Stone, the army was being pushed to its limits in the brutal summer heat of the desert. French officers under Napoleon's command would say the decision left men thirsty, plagued by mirages, and suicidal. As the French army marched toward Cairo, they would, for the first time, encounter the Ottoman army and the Mamluk, a cavalry of powerful military knights. This gave Napoleon's force a chance to practice a military tactic which would be instrumental in their next major victory. Infantry squares. Okay. Okay, what? Okay, this following message is brought to you by Melissa's Google search, what is an infantry square? I know what it is, but let's break it down. Traditionally, infantry soldiers would form a line, but cavalry attackers on horseback would often pick them off one by one or attack from the rear of the line, which was unguarded. The infantry square forms soldiers in multiple layers on all four sides, protecting them in every single direction. You'll see this used a lot. Just days later, on July 21st, Napoleon would use the same tactic at the Battle of the Pyramids. In reality, the battle was still about 15 miles away from the pyramids on the Giza Plain. The French army would form multiple infantry squares with about 25,000 men versus about the same number of Mamluk's Egyptian cavalry. Bonaparte's forces were so successful that they lost less than 30 soldiers. Almost 2,000 Egyptians were killed. When Napoleon Bonaparte arrived in Egypt, he is quoted as addressing his troops with these words, From the heights of the pyramids, 40 centuries look down upon us. It certainly must have seemed that way during the battle which boosted morale for the march on to Cairo, and a few days later the French army would secure the city, setting up a base beginning to study Egyptian history. All this by the end of July. It must have seemed that all was well, but wait... Remember Admiral Horatio Nelson and his pesky Royal Navy. They did regroup, and by August 1st, they had arrived at the Egyptian coast in the late 1700s. England by far had the superior navy. They always do. The French fleet was stationed about 20 miles away from Alexandria, and all the French ships anchored and tied together were literally sitting ducks. Unable to move, they were surrounded, and during a fierce battle, the prized French flagship Orient exploded. And it took out their commander. It would be a major victory, giving the British control of the seas for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. The Battle of the Nile, as it came to be known, also created major issues for Bonaparte's Egyptian campaign. Cut off from the rest of the world, the general was unable to get reinforcements or supplies. Meanwhile, back in Cairo, the victory over the Mamelukes was not insignificant. The Mameluks had effectively ruled Egypt since the 13th century. They had been known as invincible and fearless warriors. Victory was no small thing. And because of it, the reputation of Napoleon Bonaparte continued to grow. Effectively trapped, Napoleon proceeded with bringing his view of Western civilization to Egypt. Along with the French scholars he brought with the Army of the Orient, he established the Institute of Egypt. The Institute included a chemistry lab, health services, a library, an observatory, a botanical garden, a zoo, and an antiquities museum. The institute was staffed with over 150 scholars, and included were engineers, doctors, architects, archaeologists, geographers, and many other disciplines. In France, Napoleon Bonaparte's occupation of Egypt became the stuff of legend. But remember, I mentioned it depends on the writer of history. So let's take a brief look at how the occupation was viewed in Egypt. Arriving in Cairo on July 25th, Napoleon moved into the brand new palace of its leader who was forced to flee. He will pull off this same move again later in Moscow, but that's another story for another day. Informing the Egyptians that a group of 10 people would be ruling the country and setting up laws, well, yeah, they didn't like that. Most of the army stayed outside the city by the Nile, while the Egyptians were shocked that the Mamluks had not been able to defend them. Most citizens remained in hiding until soldiers began to stroll through the city unarmed, and they began paying high prices for anything that they bought. If you can't beat them by military force, up your prices. Napoleon began setting up military locations in strategic buildings along with artillery outside the city. At first, the general began making contact with sheiks, some of whom were impressed with the European culture. In an effort to see who was willingly submitting to his rule, he ordered citizens to wear a badge on their hats, but most people just ignored it and then he had to withdraw the order. Like so many people who have been occupied over the centuries, they began to resent Napoleon's rules, his plans, and his taxes. As an American, I can't relate. By the end of October, just three months after taking the city, the people of Cairo were in full revolt with barricades and demonstrations. The French responded with cannons and cavalry, killing an unknown number of Egyptians. After rounding up and killing some of the leaders, the army began destroying parts of the city of Cairo, building forts and demolishing mosques, as well as palaces and homes. They were also accused of poisoning dogs that might bark and warn people they were coming. Again, like many others, Napoleon Bonaparte's attempt to rule a culture that was so different from that of his would backfire. What started as an attempt to understand and be tolerant of Muslim beliefs backfire because one of the things that people just don't seem to understand is that people do not like being colonized part of the army of the Orient had continued to pursue retreating leaders to the south along the Nile for over 550 miles by February of 1799 they had taken as one now taking the city in Upper Egypt gave Napoleon's forces control of almost the entire country and the entire Nile River as 1798 came to a close and Cairo was back under his control, General Bonaparte set out to explore the Suez. Among the goals of the campaign was to control a trade route to the east. Napoleon wanted to see what was known as the Canal of the Pharaohs. Built thousands of years earlier, it had been cut between the Red Sea and the Nile by the Order of Pharaohs. Meanwhile, major trouble was brewing for the French hundreds of miles to the north. When word reached the Ottomans in Constantinople, modern-day Turkey and Istanbul, that the French fleet had been destroyed, their leader the Sultan saw an opportunity and sent two armies to attack the French in Egypt. The plan was to amass two large forces attacking Cairo, the east crossing the desert from Syria and by sea from the north out of Rhodes, Greece. In January of 1799, word reached Napoleon of the plans while he was exploring the Suez and he decided the best defense was an offense. He would attack first in Syria, giving more time to organize against the attaché from Rhodes. The first major battle was at the walled port city of Jaffa. It took a five-day siege on the walls, but by March 7th, it had fallen. The French took 4,500 prisoners who were all shot or beheaded. The claim was that they could not hold that many prisoners, and if they released them, they would just rejoin the fight. But following that battle, a hospital was set up to care for a number of French soldiers who were identified as suffering from the plague. You yeah, boy. Here we go. Now, here is where propaganda meets propaganda. One story is that to calm his troops' concerns, General Bonaparte would visit his soldiers in the hospital, touching them, saying, see, it's nothing. Jesus straight up did that first, guy. Jesus did that first, Napoleon. Come on now. Supposedly, after being told that it was not the best idea, he replied, It was my duty. I am commander-in-chief. And some later historians claim that this was entirely made up as Napoleonic propaganda and that he would avoid visiting or touching patients for fear he would catch it. I'm sorry to say there is no surviving iPhone footage to confirm either way, but there is a cool painting called Napoleon Visiting the Plague Victims of Jaffa. Uh, The artwork was completed in 1804, and it allows you to imagine what it might have looked like. I am on the team of yeah, that probably never happened. Following the victory at Jaffa, things began to take a major turn, and the army of the Orient came to a screeching halt. They would lose at the Battle of Mount Tabor and be turned back twice. Napoleon's troops found themselves outnumbered, outgunned, and undersupplied, and the Ottoman forces were growing stronger. And would you be surprised to find out that they had a major ally? The Ottomans were not only being resupplied from Constantinople, oh no, they were getting supplied by the British. Limping back to Cairo, the French army was hurting. Twelve hundred men were killed, eighteen hundred wounded, and over six hundred had died of the plague. The Ottomans and British were spreading the word of the French defeat and claiming Napoleon Bonaparte was dead. Ever the showman, Napoleon returned to Cairo as if he were the leader of a victorious army. Manifesting. He even had his soldiers carry palm branches as a sign of victory. After rest and resupplying, Napoleon would see his last battle and victory in Egypt. The Ottoman attack on Alexandria from the sea was unsuccessful. Bonaparte sent this message back to Cairo. Eighty ships have dared to attack Alexandria, but beaten back by the artillery in that place, they have gone to anchor in Abukir Bay, where they began disembarking. I leave them to do this since my intention is to attack them to kill all those who do not wish to surrender, and to leave others alive to be led in triumph to Cairo. This will be a handsome spectacle for the city. In July of 1799, the French army would attack at Aboukir, and within a few hours, they had killed or captured most of the Ottomans. Marching the captured back into Cairo, Napoleon was welcomed as a hero for predicting and delivering on the victory. During prisoner exchanges at Aboukir, the general was in communication with the British and he received news that things were not going so well in France. They had lost back land that they had captured. The French, he was told, were growing unhappy with their government. Convinced he had done all he could do with the resources available to him in Egypt and not enough to support him taking Syria, it was time to return to France. In August of 1799, the general left Cairo under the pretense that he was going on a voyage on the Nile Delta. Accompanied by two of his scholars, a painter, and four of his generals, he transferred power to Commander General Clibbert. Well, that did not sit well with the soldiers who felt they had been left behind. And who could blame him? The small group did not meet a single enemy ship on the journey, and on October 1st, as they were ported into Ajaccio, Corsica, where Napoleon had been born, they decided to take some rest. This would be the last time that Napoleon Bonaparte would ever visit his birthplace. On October 8th, they reached France and Napoleon, headed to Paris. One of the things Napoleon does not do really well is read the room. His ego frequently gets in the way, but word of the troubles in the French government meant one thing in his mind. France needs me right now, in France. I'm sure the members of the directory would have disagreed vehemently. One of the first stories I ever learned about Napoleon Bonaparte was from his days in Egypt, and it's probably not true, but nevertheless, it stuck with the little eight-year-old history nerd, Melissa, who read it in a book. It is definitely apocryphal. The story goes that when Napoleon was visiting Giza during his exhibition to the pyramids in 1798, he decided he was going to spend the night in the pyramids. Do you wanna get cursed? Cause that sounds like a great way to get cursed. It's said that Napoleon spent the night wandering around the forbidden parts of the pyramid with nothing but a candle to light the way. But when he emerged the very next morning, something was wrong. He was pale and looked terrified. On his deathbed years later, he was asked about this, and he started to say what happened, but then he goes, what's the use? You won't believe me. And though it's likely just a legend, part of me wonders if Napoleon did, in fact, see his future inside the pyramid. A warning not to let the power go to his head. Because you see, that's exactly what Napoleon Bonaparte is going to do. And well, it's all downhill from here. God's Favorites is a semi-weekly podcast where we talk about the people who were God's favorites or just thought they were like this guy. Join us next time as Napoleon just decides that if uh, nobody else is gonna do it well, he'll just do it himself. A coup is coming. Thank you to all of you who donate to our Patreon that allows me to get behind paywalls, pay for books, pay for music licensing costs and podcast streaming services. It's a lot more than you think, kids. Today's sources, Napoleon Alive, by Andrew Roberts. Napoleon in Egypt, September 15, 2009, article by Paul Strathern, History.com, the National Gallery of Victoria, Napoleon.org, TourEgypt.net, and the British Museum, who somehow ended up with the Rosetta Stone after all this anyway. See, Britain, even when you aren't doing the looting, you still end up with the stuff. If you would like to see the Rosetta Stone, it has been on display almost continuously since 1802 in London, England in the British Museum. You heard it, the Brits have it. With the British victory in Egypt in 1802 under the Treaty of Alexandria, the British took possession of the Rosetta Stone and all of the other antiquities the French had found. To this day, people in Egypt are trying to get their treasures back. It is just, what did I say earlier? Colonizers going to colonize. To the victors go the spoils. I can't wait to see you all back here next time for his coup and the times that Napoleon will meet people who are just as crazy as he is. That's including Catherine the Great's grandson and the leader of a Haitian rebellion. We'll see you next time, friends.